If you would please turn with me to Acts chapter 2. It was the summer of 2019 that my family and I were enjoying a day at the lake over near Port Huron. We have a spot near uh, Lake Huron that we enjoy swimming at, and there's one particular reason why we like this spot, and that is because it's a place where you can go out like normal, and it kind of drops down over your head, but if you go about 20 feet beyond that, you can come to a sandbar, and it's a very big sandbar, and a lot of boats will come in, and they'll dock there and just have a nice time, and, and we as a family, uh, the kids and I more so, enjoy swimming out to that sandbar and, and playing catch, and you kind of feel like you're separated a little bit. Well, on this particular day, I was playing catch uh, with my daughter, and as we were throwing the ball back and forth, I noticed just to her right behind her, someone was kind of waving their hands and, and shouting. And um, I, I stopped and looked and got a little closer, and you can see someone was over their head in the water, and they were struggling. And so I started to make my way uh, towards them, knowing that I'm, I'm, I'm about almost six foot, and I can stand up in higher places that a lot of people can. And so I started making my way, and I saw this teenage girl, and she was flapping her hands up in the air, and she was shouting help and then going under. It was very daunting. And so I started to go towards her, and I got to the point where I could no longer walk, but I was going to be in over my head. But clearly there was something going on, so I kept going and swam about 10 feet out to her. And when I was about six feet from her, I shouted some instructions that I was hoping she heard. And I'll let you know now, she didn't hear what I said to her. And we can't blame her for that. And as I got a little bit closer, I had said what I had told her, and I was going to try to help her get to a place where she could stand up once again. And I got up close to her, and I was expecting her to do what I expected her to do. Now, it might come as a surprise to you that I have zero lifeguard training. It's going to become very, very clear here in just a second. Because as I swam up to the young lady, and as I got close, I was expecting to, to help raise her up so she could get her breath, and then maybe help her get to where she could stand up. But as soon as I got within 12 inches, can you guess what she did? She put both her hands on my head and on my shoulders, and she shoved me down and pulled herself up. What, what was the most important thing to her that she wanted? She wanted just one breath of air at that point, one breath of air. And I went down under the water, and I had to push her off like this. And none of you in this room have ever heard me shout as loud as I did as I shouted at her when she was, you know, in, in danger of drowning. I gave her the instructions again. I shouted, and then I came right back up to her. Would you care to guess what she did this time? She took both of her hands, put them on my head, shoved me down, shoved herself up. It was probably about eight foot right there, so I would hit the bottom when she would shove me down. Can any of you guess what the most important thought in my mind was at that point? It was my next breath. How am I going to get my next breath? I'm going to finish that story at the end of our time today. Clearly, clearly you kind of know how at least half of it works out, I'm sure. 
But I wanted to start with that because you and I, and oftentimes in our ignorance, we are surrounded by people that are in something just as dangerous. There are people who have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, which every person in this world needs. But there are many Christians who are struggling and who are near drowning. But the difference is, is many of them do it silently. Many individuals in a church family will be going through tremendous pain and turmoil. And they will not share that. They're not necessarily waving their hands. And you will not pick it up unless you know what to look for or the right questions to ask. And what we'll see in God's Word today is the example of the very first church and what the first century church has given us for how we are to act towards others in the church. As we jump into this, I'm going to ask you to just do some work on your own. This is a couple thousand years ago that this church miraculously started. And so we've seen an evolution in the church that's led us to the day that we're in. But I still want to point you to Acts chapter 2 saying there are tremendous principles for us to apply even today. We're closing up our series on, uh, on the church called Church is Essential. And here at Calvary, we have four main objectives. Anything that we do here in the church, anything the church gives effort towards, time towards, money towards, anything that we do falls underneath one of these four main objectives. Now, some of you already knew these going into this. Some of you have been learning these over the past several weeks. So let me give you a quiz, all right? If you know these four in the order that we usually say them, would you say them with me? Worship, instruction, fellowship, and expression. Very good. Nice job. You get an A plus on that. When we look at these objectives, the one fellowship is one that people might be drawn to, is one that some people might even think is easy. Well, fellowship, I, I like that one. Let, let's focus on that one. And yet, as we look into God's Word and see the example of the early church, and then as we look deep within our own church, I think it will strike us as not so easy. This is something that maybe you'll be challenged with today. We're going to ask four questions about fellowship and answer them from Luke chapter 2. The first question is this, what does fellowship mean? What does fellowship mean? I want you to point your attention to verse 42 of Acts 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, when I grew up, we had a place in our church that was on the backside of the sanctuary that we called the fellowship hall. And there are some individuals that will have a bowling fellowship. Some will have a classic car fellowship. It almost feels like any activity we want to do with a group, we can just put the word fellowship on the end of it and then this fellowship. But is that what the church is talking about? Is that what God has challenged us to? This word fellowship comes from the word koinonia. And when we think of koinonia, we're going to see several ways how this is much, much deeper than just sharing a meal with someone or just being in the same group with another. In fact, when we see the record of this church starting, we find in verse 44 
some good information that helps us know more about this word koinonia. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And so, if you're taking notes, we have this koinonia or this fellowship. We gather with a goal of stimulating each other to spiritual growth. That's more than just sharing a meal together. Helping someone else be stirred up to grow in their walk with God. Allowing yourself to be vulnerable enough to let someone sharpen you and press you more into the image of Jesus Christ. And this stirring up picture that we find in the New Testament is never more clearly seen in the New Testament than in the two-word phrase, one another. We find that phrase, one another, throughout the New Testament about 60 times. Let me give you some examples. In Romans 13, it tells us to love one another. Romans 14 edify one another. In Ephesians chapter 4, be kind one to another. Also in Ephesians 4, forgive one another. You cannot do one another from behind a computer. You cannot do one another on your device, on your phone. The New Testament church was intensely relational. What does it look like? We see it recorded for what it looked like for them, but how about for you and I? What might that look like? Let me test your knowledge of the law just for a moment. How many of you are familiar with the Good Samaritan Law? Raise your hand if you've heard of the Good Samaritan Law. Okay, looks like maybe a quarter of the congregation. The Good Sam- I'm not going to have you come up here or anything. You can raise your hand. The Good Samaritan Law. When we look at the Good Samaritan Law... I'm going to define it in just for a second, but before I do, I want to apply this koinonia to us. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 3 says that we are to exhort one another. I'm going to let you know that not everybody can exhort everybody else. There has to be a relationship that is there, and that will not just happen on a superficial level. The Good Samaritan Law is defined as this. It offers limited protection to someone who attempts to help a person in distress. Good Samaritan laws are written to encourage bystanders bystanders, to get involved in these and other emergency situations without fear that they will be sued. And you know, really that's kind of sad that there has to be a law that protects someone who's just trying to help somebody out when they were in an emergency situation. But then again, some of you have been around church for a while. Some of you have been burned before. And so some of you have made yourself vulnerable. You've tried to help somebody else out. You've tried to exhort them, encourage them, kind of you were blinking the warning light at the direction they were going, and you got blown out of the water. And so some people, when they get burned, their tendency is either fight or flight. And so many people just say, I'm going to keep my head down, I'm just going to do what I want to do, and I'm not going to make myself vulnerable enough to be part of that koinonia, that deep fellowship anymore. 
If we have fellowship like the New Testament church had it, we're going to have exhortation. What else will it look like? Well, generosity. There is no group of people in the world who should be more generous than followers of Jesus Christ. There is no one who has received more that we do not deserve than those who know the grace of Jesus Christ. Don't you want to be known as generous? When we look at the, new, the first church, we see that the people sold their goods to help others in need. So this church miraculously came together, and some of them who were pretty well off are selling things to help others who couldn't feed themselves, couldn't support themselves. And in order to do that, it is going to take trust. It is going to take, if we're going to be generous, it's going to mean someone saying, you know, I can see now that, that you need this more than I do. That might get in the way of our plans, might get in the way of some goals that we have. And that's why if you're going to part with that and be generous to somebody else, it's going to require trust. And honestly, if it doesn't require any trust, is it really being all that generous? It's like easy come, easy go. I used to find cash all over town. Some of you know this. I would walk around town. I'd find cash all the time. I have found every denomination of bill except for a $2 bill and a $50 bill. I found $100 bills on a couple occasions. I have found $20 bills and $10 bills and $5 bills. It became so common that here's what I chose to do with that. If I found a bill, I decided just to hand it off that day. Now, don't think that great of me because what did that cost me to get that? If I find a $20 bill and I decide to give it to somebody that day, however the Lord leads, what did that cost me really? It cost me nothing. The idea behind being generous is that it cost us something. That was my time that I was going to do this with, but I can see there's time needed here. Or I can tell by conversations I've had with this one that I've gotten to know in the church that they could use some encouragement, maybe in a financial matter, maybe in some help with their family. We need to be generous. I understand it's hard to make yourself vulnerable. And I know that can almost come off as rude sometimes to want to help other people. And sometimes you've got to almost be insistent. I know you need this, and God is working on my heart to help you out in this way. We want to be a generous people. And then very quickly, uh, one more area that we can show koinonia in is by bringing someone alongside you. And we need to move on. But this is a point that strikes a chord with me, and I know for several of you it strikes a chord. We have a character in the New Testament named Barnabas. He did this with Paul. He brought him alongside when some people wouldn't, they were afraid to talk to Paul. And he brought him alongside and he invested in him. And some of you out there know the name of the person or the persons who invested in you. When I think of when I was a 19-year-old and some fellow in the church saw me, and we didn't have anything in common except we had Jesus Christ in common and went to the same church. And he pulled me alongside himself. He taught me several things. Can you guess how many things I think I taught him? 
I don't think as a 19-year-old I taught him anything. But he chose to bring me alongside. And some of you can know, you can name the person who invited you to learn from them. And then I also know this is true. Some of you, you wish with all your heart that you had someone at a season in your life that would have come to you and encouraged you and helped you. Let the warning lights flash a little bit in your life. Bring someone alongside. All right, let's move on. The next question, why is fellowship needed? Why is fellowship needed? If you have a good handle on Acts chapter 2 and how the church started, you're already going to be a little bit ahead. If not, I'll try to explain a little bit, but I want to take us to Acts chapter 2. We're going to back up. And we're going to find when right after the uh, Holy Spirit came down and 120 that were in the upper room were speaking in tongues and something amazing was happening, it could not be denied that something miraculous was happening. Draw your attention to verse number 12. We're going to connect this to why fellowship is needed. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? And then we find a couple different reactions. Verse 13, but others mocking said they are filled with new wine. Something undeniably incredible happens, and there are two responses. Some people saw and said, well, those those people are drunk. And others saw and said, we need to ask more about this. So right off the bat, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 12, there's already a conflict. We know from reading through the history of this church that some of those people accepted Jesus Christ. Thousands of them would call upon Jesus Christ as their Savior. And many who heard that would not. If you think there was a conflict between them in that little moment in Acts 2.12 when some thought this and some thought this, continue reading. And in chapter 5, in chapter 6, these that accepted Christ would be running for their life. Because when the gospel is being effective, when people are turning their lives over to God and God's doing something amazing, the devil attacks. And there was persecution from men upon these ones that accepted Christ, and it's that that takes place where the gospel is going to spread. It's going to spread like fire. But what is needed with those ones who had accepted Jesus Christ was they needed somebody else who had accepted Jesus Christ who was going through what they were going through. They needed that fellowship desperately. They would find themselves running for their lives. And today, we live in a culture that is increasingly hostile towards believers and Christian values. I recognize that where you live, this country, God's name and God's laws were all over the founding documents of this country. But if you think that you're going to be able to continue to believe what this book says in any kind of a public way, and not be persecuted, and not be opposed, maybe even lose your job, or maybe someday go to jail, then you are naive. We live in a culture that opposes Christian values. I was just talking with a pastor this past week, and he said, well, Ann Arbor, he pastors in Ann Arbor, Ann Arbor's first, 
guys, there's about half a dozen of us there. He said, in Ann Arbor, they just passed an ordinance that goes with a fine if you do not abide by it. And that ordinance is, is if your public place provides feminine products in the ladies' bathroom, then by law, in Ann Arbor, you have to provide feminine products in the men's bathroom. And there will be a fine imposed if they don't do that. He's having to walk through that. And some of you think, well, that's Ann Arbor. That would never happen in our home area. My point is this. You need to not wait until there are flames over your head before you try to find somebody else like you. You need to already have that connection. You need to be able to share that. And not only these incredible persecution things, but just the getting through life things. Whatever the next stage of your life is, raising children, having grandchildren, going off to college, trying to decide about a job. Koinonia means that we are in this together. We have this in common. And when we look at the persecution that they face, we understand that we will face persecution as well. Next question, how is fellowship done? How is fellowship done? We get a couple of examples in the New Testament about this. Um, Draw your attention to verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts. So there's a twofold answer to how is this fellowship done. We find both of them there in verse 46. The first one is the temple. They were meeting at the temple. Now, when we look at the temple in their day, there was a, an area that was about 35 acres of a paved area called Solomon's Porch. And these believers who had just come to Christ, who had just grown from 120 to 3,120, they could go to the temple and they could find an area in this huge, in this huge space and worship. Listen to the teaching of the apostles. Sing and praise God for what he had done. Before the persecution came, they had it pretty good at that point. So one way that they were doing fellowship was in the temple. And then the other way it says there, you saw it, didn't you? In homes. What's this? This is the informal meetings. This is the individuals that were sharing a meal together, sharing life together, going through some similar things, or maybe they lived close by each other and they were followers of Christ. This is an informal meeting to likely discuss what the apostles' teaching was about and how they could live it out. That's what they were busy doing. In the temple, the preacher had something that they were all to hear. There's a certain mode that's involved there. And in the homes, it's not that you're listening to what somebody else has to say, but in the homes, you want to get to the point where you have something to say. And everything in our day and in our world works against this. Everything is going down to just the individual everywhere. I mean, it used to be, you know, the preachers would get up and go off on, on television. You're watching too much TV out there. Well, at least we used to watch a show together as three or four or five people, right? Nowadays, everybody's got their own show with their own earbuds in, and they can do whatever they want. And all around you, 
all around you, everybody is just focused on this because they can pick their music, they can pick their show, they can pick their friends on social media, and everything works against this. And God, in His plan for Koinonia, wants you to be connected to others. He wants the earbuds to come out, He wants the screens to go down, and He wants you to help stir them up to good works. And He wants you to be stirred up as well. Can you be a Christian without a church? Well, yeah. The gospel's clear on how we become a Christian. But that's not the way God intended it. And it's not as fun. Can you, can you play football by yourself? Well, maybe you've seen somebody go and put on a football uniform all by himself. Go out there in the backyard and take the football and throw it up and catch it. He might even announce that it was the game-winning touchdown. And you can have so much fun. But it's not near as good as a team working together and battling against the enemy and seeing victory after victory. Can you play tuba all by yourself? Sure you can. You can play tuba. You can get very, very good at it all by yourself. I don't think you're going to get very many people buying your tuba solo record online or, or a download online. Why? Because the tuba is meant to be played in, in a group. And as the orchestra plays and the different instruments and the, the melody and the harmony and the beauty of that, and it produces something beautiful. And that's how God wants each of his local churches to be, something beautiful being done by people working together. And then the last question, when does fellowship happen? You may be surprised by the answer. It may never happen. If you choose for fellowship to not be a part of your life, you may never experience this main objective of God's church that He's given us. This way that He has made for you to grow and to be generous and to exhort others and to help, it may never happen if you don't want it to. Because some people have just gotten burned before. I've gotten close and I've got burned. And so I just can't be part of that anymore. And so... What's the challenge for us to do today? Well, take the next step of fellowship in your life. Specifically ask, who am I stirring up to good works? And then ask, am I being intentional about myself being stirred up more and more? Ask these questions and check yourself and see if you're a part of what God wants you to be. Now, I told you I was going to finish that story of this teenage girl who was in over her head on Lake Huron. And as I got closer, and she shoved me down, and I was shocked, and then I got up and got my breath, and then tried to help her again and got shoved down a second time. I think it was when I was pushing her away that she got a little bit closer and closer to where she could stand. Finally, I didn't come at her straight on. I went around the side. <laughs> Some of you are going to say, duh, just like that. And I was able to prop her up to where she could get some air. 
she could get to the point where she was no longer in a panic. She had a breath, and she could see that progress was being made, and there was someone that was pulling her along. And finally, we got closer and closer to where I could stand up, and I called another guy or two over, and we got her to the point where she could stand up, and then she just kind of collapsed, kind of in a panic attack kind of way. And my parting words to her, I don't know her name, but my parting words to her were this, you should be in church tomorrow, is exactly what I said to her. I understand that it can be dangerous, and I understand that some of you have even been pushed down and not been able to get your own breath. That's what makes it sweet and beautiful, is when you go through something, a challenge or a hurt, and you continue to say, God, I trust you. I trust your plan. I will do what you lead me to do and allow ourselves to be ministered to and sharpened and not be content to have people around us just walking in and walking out from the church meeting on Sunday, but to be a part of letting them know that Jesus not only loves them, but they need to be working at being an integral part of the family of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, when we we look to you, we understand that we are not worthy. We're not worthy of heaven. We're not worthy of forgiveness. We're not worthy of gathering together as a group of people who have something to rejoice over. And yet, Heavenly Father, Jesus loved us so much that he paid the price on the cross. I thank you for that love. And I would ask that you would allow us not to forget how loved we are so that we could pay that love forward to someone else. Would you allow us to combat the thinking of the world, not what can I get out of it, but what can I pour into it? Who can I help? And I thank you for individuals who have had this wonderful mindset over the years, individuals who have brought someone alongside them Some have shown love and generosity in such a beautiful way. Some have flashed the warning signs and said, you need to stop the direction you're going. It's dangerous. God, you've not put us in this world to be by ourselves, but you've put us here with others. And we thank you for that. While the piano plays through, I want to give you a chance to pray this morning. There might be something that the Holy Spirit's working in your heart to pray about. I'd leave you to that to talk to Him. It could be there's some hearing this message today that have never accepted Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And if you will just ask Him to forgive you because of the work that He did to die for your sins, He promises to forgive you, show you grace, and make you His child. And even in this moment, you can pray and say, God, forgive me a sinner. I accept the work of Jesus Christ as payment for my sin. You start the prayer count on him to continue it. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand? We're going to sing.